BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Healing with Dr. George, the power of Chicano Latinx art. This is a podcast that explores the themes of self and community healing, whether as an artist, curator, collector, or admirer. I am your host, Dr. George Jesus Mesa, a Chicano clinical psychologist with a passion for promoting and preserving Chicano Latinx art. I'm working in conjunction with our partners at www.latinoarte.com, an online marketplace that showcases and promotes the work of Chicano Latinx artists throughout the United States. Our guests for the podcast will include celebrated artists, collectors, curators, and influencers who will share their experiences and perspectives on Chicano Latinx art as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx art. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of having as our guest, Elsa Flores Almaraz. I'm going to read you a little bit of her bio. Elsa demonstrated interest in arts from a very young age. She grew up on Los Angeles East Side. While a high school student, Elsa received a scholarship to attend the Idlewild School of Music and the Arts. She then studied photography at California State University, Los Angeles, and afterwards enrolled at the Arts Center College of Design in Pasadena, where she focused on her art skills. While at the Arts Center, she taught music and music education at Plaza de la Raza with artists Carlos Almaraz and Luis Perez and David Hidalgo of Los Lobos. Elsa occasionally performed with Los Lobos back in their early days. Her artistic credits include approximately 12 solo exhibits and over 32 group exhibitions throughout all of the United States and Mexico. Elsa's most recent project was as a co-director, writer, executive producer, and art director for the documentary film about her late husband, Carlos Samaras. The film titled Carlos Samaras Playing with Fire is available on Netflix. This extraordinary work documents Elsa's loving marriage with Carlos and her memories of his art. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to see it today. Welcome to our esteemed guest, Elsa Flores Almaraz. Thank you. I'm honored, um, but also you're a dear friend, so I'm really um, happy to be here and talking to you. Well, I am honored to have you. Can you tell us about your origins, your oh, early history? My origins. Well, um, that was an old Wikipedia. I didn't write that, but it was amazing that it went way back to Idlewell School of Music and the Arts. I went to Wilson High School in El Sereno. 
And uh, yeah, the college experience was, I ended with Art Center College. Uh, my origins were that I was born in Las Vegas, Nevada. My dad was a very um, addicted gambler, and that's why we lived there during my birth. Um, then we moved to Los Angeles when I was one year old. And we've, we, I was raised in L.A., in northeast L.A., of, uh, El Sereno. How did your journey as an artist begin? When can you just first remember saying, wow, I, I have an aptitude for this or I like this? or Yeah. Well, on Fridays in, in, in the public elementary school, I went to Farmdale Elementary, we had um, art day. So we got to do watercolors. And I remember just doing washes like, like horizons, just like washes of color. And that's when I really um, found that I loved art. And then later, my cousin, Mickey, May Valenzuela, who taught who taught photography at East LA College for decades, she gave me my first set of paints, and my mom encouraged me. And then I had a fantastic teacher at Wilson, Miss Geich, Christa Geich, very German, and she rolled her R's, and uh, she was super encouraging. And that's how I got involved in the the um, the School of Arts at Idlewild. Uh, for two summers. They were all Beverly Hills High kids, so it was very intimidating, but I did hook up with a few Chicanos there. And then the last year, we had like, they they brought in like um, a whole bunch of kids from the south side of Chicago, of Chicago like the, these African-American kids, and we bonded and we became dear friends. And uh, so, yeah, so that was kind of where I began my uh, uh, oh and I did a, a film class at Wilson one summer and that was um, where I fell in love with with film and uh, photography. Mm, amazing. Who were your early art influences back then if you could recall? Well because art for me back then was um, sort of a, 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 a something that saved my soul because you know, as a teenager, it's a difficult time. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was depressed because a lot of my images were very morbid. Um, and I recall who I really responded to were people like um, Salvador Dali. I was very much a surrealist back then. And um, Escher, MCA Escher. Um, I did very exacting pointillism and rapidograph and just really realistic type black and white drawings back then. And then I discovered painting. Oh, how did you join the Chicano art scene? What, how did that come Ooh. about? Well, you know, my mom was always um, very revolutionary minded. And so um, an activist in high school, Arturo Chavez, came uh, to my house. He was my brother's friend, trying to recruit him to work for the Committee of Free Los Tres, which was headquartered in El Serena. And my brother kind of wasn't interested, but I jumped in. And that's when I became politicized. And of course, it was the 70s. It was the the, the renaissance of uh, Chicano culture and activism. And I wanted to be involved. So I became the art liaison and did all the, uh, the propaganda art, the, the posters and publicity for the Comité for Los Tres. And um, and then just uh, continued that. I became a musician around the same time. I was teaching guitar at El Sereno Junior High and then recruited by Plaza to teach the history of Mexico through music with David Hidalgo and Luis Perez and Cesar Torres. That's um, not where I met Carlos, but my music career kind of took me in. We did. I was in several musical bands um, throughout like regional um, styles throughout Latin America, some Nueva Trova, which was political music uh, of Latin America, and even like a rock band and a, an alternative band called the Knuckleheads with David Louie. 
I love it. I love it. What, um, let's go, we're going to kind of, let's go in through the Almaraz years. When, okay. when did you first, when did you first meet Carlos? A good segue because I first met Carlos with my work for Los Tres. Um, Carlos came to the Comité and asked if they could do a mural for Los Tres and they, they had him meet me. So I met him in his mom's yellow kitchen in Whittier, California. And um, we talked, we got to know each other. Um, and then I would see him at different rallies and protests and, and art events and things like that. Um, so not until he, we both started working at Plaza de la Raza, he was teaching the history of Mexico through art and uh, with Judith uh, Hernandez and a few other notable artists. Um, and that's when I, you know, we kind of became closer uh, we still didn't kind of hang out together, and but I knew he was interested in me. And and my friend Roberto Gil de Montes uh, would always uh, say that Carlos was giving me goo goo eyes. So I kind of at that point I wasn't interested. I just thought he was too old. He was fourteen years older than me. I think I was nineteen, and he was thirty three. And he was like over the hill, you know. When you're nineteen, someone in their thirties is like wailed. So um, it wasn't until it's this is in the film as well. It wasn't until my mom dropped me off at my studio downtown, which Carlos encouraged artists to move downtown. So I rented the studio above his with Victor Durazo, who is a, a dancer and artist. Uh, rest in peace, Vic. And um, yeah, and then and then he was standing at his window. He was quite a voyeur. He was always looking out on the street to see what was the action on the street. There were drug deals and prostitutes. And um, he was smoking a joint at his window. And I pointed him out to my, my mom. And my, I'm like, mom, see that man up there? He likes me, but he's so old. And her response was, son los mejores, which means they're the best. So I'm like, huh, mom gave me the high sign. Maybe I'll go out with him. And we we had a date. We went out. Um, it was magic. Like we went to see Black Beauty or no, Black Stallion at the Cinerama Dome. And we re reacted to every scene, every beautiful uh, transition in the scene together. And we would squeeze each other's hands. And there was like no, no age difference between us. It, there, it felt perfectly normal. He was so young at heart, very young spirited. What was your life together like? Well, was, um, let's see. In early it, days, as a couple. As a couple, it was bliss. I mean... He had gone through all that stuff in New York, you know, he died and come back to, to into his body and continued his political work and then transitioned into his, his private work. Um, and our lives were like, we were just so in love that we didn't want, we had a little cocoon. We didn't really need anyone. Uh, we had a few good friends that we would see, but mostly we were holed up in, in our house or, or at that point we started sharing a studio in the same building on Spring Street. And um, so it was like, what, running around naked at home, you know, making art, seeing good friends, going to the studio, making art, going home. Um, just, just loving being a couple. And, um, for the first time he really felt fulfilled in that way because he had always had these sort of traumatic relationships with men and women. And, um, so when, when we did do that, I mean, he had been working with a psychologist for maybe 20 years trying to figure himself out. And he told the, the, the shrink, Hey, I like, 
um, I met this, this girl and the shrink told him to take it slow. So we would have Wednesday night dates and Saturday night dates. And with the day John Lennon died, which was probably maybe six months into our relationship, he immediately said, I'm moving in. You know, time is, is wasting. Life is too short. And that's how we kind of hooked up. He moved into my my house in Highland Park. And we had an amazing views all the way down to Palos Verdes, um, Southwest Museum and beyond. And uh, we would sit and paint on the balcony and have friends over and we'd paint and eat. And it was, it was a Shangri-La of bohemianism. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And uh, when did you get married? At what point? And we got married probably a year later, maybe sooner. And uh, he felt like he was too old to have a wedding. And I was shy. I didn't really want a wedding. So we decided to elope. And we we bought our rings. We're heading to um, Oaxaca to get be married. And the judge wouldn't marry us because his passport had expired. And Carlos was born in Mexico City. So thought I was smuggling him out of the country. So they wouldn't marry us. So, you know, we've tucked our tail between our legs and we, we were going to go to Cancun for honeymoon. So we stopped in Mexico City where Roberto Gildemontes and his partner, Eddie Dominguez, were living, working for the Tamayo Museum. Um, and, and, and we didn't tell them either. Later, they were very upset. We did not. And we went to Cancun. When we got to Cancun, we're like, whoa, you know, we're both water people, Carlos and I. We're like, this is where we should come and get married. So we went to L.A., Got his passport together, and two months later, right before his birthday in October, we went to Cancun and were married by the Justice of the Peace. And Cancun at that point was like undeveloped. There were stretches of empty, beautiful beaches. And um, so, yeah, we were married there. And uh, a year later, went to conceive our daughter, Maya. And we went to Isla Mujeres, which is off of Cancun, called uh, the Island of Fertility. That's why her name is Maya. She was a Mayan princess. That's where the name comes in. It's one of the most tranquil islands I've ever been to, by the way. I know, but it's changed. If you haven't been there recently, so sad, but. Very commercialized. What were some of your happiest memories of your marriage to Carlos? Uh, um, I loved, um, I just loved our life that, you know, that we, we, we had this perfect blend of uh, humor which he kept me in stitches. He was so funny. And that's the one piece that was not in the film that I wanted to be in the film. It just never made it and, uh, or was developed. And so maybe that's a short film in itself. So I love the humor, the laughter, the, um, everything was art. Our whole life was art. And um, yeah, so those, those were the, the best memories. How was having him as a partner 
prompting your your art your artistic vision and career and mm-hmm. talents and skills? That's a kind of a complicated question because um, yes, we 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 inspired each other artistically because our whole life was like making art together as a couple and making art as uh, independently at that point I wasn't painting so much I was really as kind of a a photojournalist uh, documenting the Chicano movement and the punk scene and just you know I was follow Los Lobos around and I would follow all kinds of artists and then I would do my own personal art fine art photography and exhibited internationally the, the at that point Black and white photography wasn't really, um, you couldn't sell a black and white photo. So I returned to my first love, which was painting. And I started painting on my photographs, like really thickly, like obliterating parts of the photograph and, you know, impostoed. And um, they started selling. So from there, I went straight back to canvas. And artistically, we would influence each other. We were, again, we were sharing the, our, the Spring Street studio at that point. And um, he would walk by and look at my painting. And since he was, you know, the, 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 the maestro at the time, he would um, stop me and say, it's done. Don't touch it. And sometimes I would go on and finish it. But other times it was nice to have him to bounce that off of. And, and I did the same for him. And later he he acknowledged that I actually influenced him more than he would ever admit. And that was in my surface um, application of the paint because I was really building up huge, like thick surfaces on my paint. And some of the paintings were very heavy. I would throw sand in there, and gauze and all wax, all kinds of stuff and really build up the surface. And so Carlos's painting at that point was, he was working in acrylic. So it's very flat. Um, not a lot of texture. And then, so he was noticing. And then at that point, he was going back to New York, trying to rekindle a relationship with the Ellen Stone Gallery. And Ellen Stone liked his car crashes, but said, oh, the surface needs a little more articulation. So he came back to the studio in LA and started really building up his canvases. And he'd come over and he'd watch me and he'd look at him and he'd go back and he'd fill in and he, and he built up his surface. So we really influenced each other's uh, style. I, I was very reluctant to work in pastels because I wouldn't ever be able to touch him. He was such a master of pastel, but my palette was very different than his. I used a lot more black than he did. And that, that stems from my, my, my depression as a, a teenager and working in black and working out my angst and, um, and his was very vibrant. So, but the biggest obstacle we had, and um, it came full circle towards the end of his life, was that, um, you know, he was well-known as, as one of the leaders of the Chicano art movement. So curators from around the world would come to him to say, hey, we're doing a museum show or we're doing this big show and who would you recommend? And he would name every Juan Mengano and Fulano except for me. And I was a better artist than a lot of those guys. And they would all get in the shows and have these big careers now. And he would not ever recommend me. So that was the only fight we ever had. Uh, and it happened several times. And his excuse was always, I can't recommend you. It's a conflict of interest. You're my wife. And I'm like, that's BS. You know, um, I was, we were peers before I was your wife. And, you know, so that was a bone of contention between us. And not until right before his death did he confess to me. And it was one of his insecurities uh, that came up. And he said that he was afraid that I'd become more famous than he was. 
And I was in shock because that would never have happened. He was always already well into his career. And uh, but it showed you, you know, the the vulnerabilities that that he had deep inside. Right. What was his personal struggles as a human being, do you think? Yeah. You, well, if, if you watch the film, which I recommend everyone watch it, um, it's a really honest look at the artist. I wasn't like, you know, um, I didn't have him on a pedestal. Carlos was very clear in all of his journals um, that he was open to letting people know what his history and his demons were throughout his lifetime. So he had gone through so many demons. And like I said, almost died uh, 20 years before his actual death from alcoholism. I didn't know him then, but um, his when he when he finally came make the break made the breakthrough to come and have a relationship with me, he um, he was in a good place. I mean, he was felt secure. He started being uh, recognized, acknowledged for his his artistic um, genius, and started actually selling art. Uh, we were never rich, you know. We were still like poor and barely making the rent because suddenly now he had to pay taxes and uh, all the money was going towards taxes because we had no write-offs. You know, most Chicanos weren't taught any business uh, sense um, in the barrio. So no role models. So um, he was felt really very virile, like, you know, he can provide. And when we started having a baby, I stayed home for the first six months and, you know, he was the provider. So he felt really good about that. Um, but the demons, um, happened when he was diagnosed with AIDS in 1988, no, 87. Um, how long, how long had you been married at that time when he was diagnosed? Or oh, you, about, you, about eight years. Can you recall what were the process leading up to that? I mean, how did that come about? The diagnosis? Yeah, well, you know, we were carefree, fancy free and, you know, um, he, we started hearing about AIDS in the news and um, he was a little concerned. I was too, because he had told me all about his sexual history, his past in New York and his promiscuities. And, and um, one day he went to his doctor, Dr. Fader, his childhood doctor in East LA. And cause he had shingles and he said, well, the doctor said, let's, let's test you. And he tested positive and he came home and he told me and my knees buckled. I just assumed it was, a, it was a death sentence back then. There was, um, and I just assumed I had it. And I, we assumed our daughter Maya had it um, by, you know, by the grace of the goddess, we did not. Maya, neither Maya or I contracted it after seven years of unprotected sex. We had this great doctor who was taking care of all, you know, our friends. Um, he was recommended to us, Dr. Gene Rogalski, Rogalski, Gene Rogalski, who later became, um, a really big, important collector and collected a lot of Chicano art. We really guided him into, you know, who he should collect. And he just passed last year, but he had um, donated his entire collection to the Fisher Art Museum at USC. So Rogalski, you know, took us under his wing, became our friend. And um, he had, um, you know, at the time, like I said, all they had was AZT, which now we know was poisoning people. And uh, I would uh, I would research and try to get some underground drugs and I would go and score these, you know, these medicines um, and they would help for a, t for a little bit and then he would regress into the disease. So it was a two year long process for us um, 
it, it, it happened fast because he, he thought, Carlos thought, that his body was so beat up from all those years of abusing it with alcohol and, and um, that, you know, he didn't stand a chance. And I was determined to, to find that miracle and that make him, you know, live until there's a cure. So I was researching all the holistic um, alternative medicines for him and trying to get him to eat healthy. We had one fight about a hot dog that wouldn't let him have a hot dog. And then later it's like, you know, a hot dog wasn't going to kill him. Let him have a hot dog. So I let him have a hot dog. You were that caregiver. Right? Was that one. And, um, but yeah, it was very exhausting because, you know, I was a sole care provider and I was, you know, um, kind of taking care of Maya on, a, on my own had a, a, a small group of friends, uh, Dan Guerrero and, and Dan Bryce and um, Robert Gildemontis who would come and help me a lot. And so they, they would, um, you know, let me get a break and go out and, you know, get out of the house while they sat with him. And um, so, yeah, and, and he would be in and out of the hospital until um, he, the day, the day before he died, uh, he was in the hospital, but not because he had any opportunistic um, diseases. He wasn't supposed to die. He was there to be fed intravenously because he was so thin. And we had just had a big studio sale, which we would, which we would do every, every holiday. And um, the word was out. So people were like clamoring to buy almanas, you know, like sharks in the water. And we made a lot of money on that, that, that sale. So we immediately went to the hospital the next day and he was like in bliss because we had made money. He was still as thin as a, a, a bird. He's a little, little, he would raise his arms up in the sky and say, look at me, I'm Ricky Ricardo. He actually saw himself full and healthy and it was in great spirits and, you know, told me I, he loved me and was kissing my arms and called friends and to tell him that he loved them. And a friend of ours from New Mexico, Pam, Pamela Mitchell, um, was there with us. And she says, oh, I knew he was going to pass because that's what happens sometimes. They come to life and, you know, they, they, they see the light and, and they, they fall in love with, with everything again. And sure enough, that night, because he had been miserable before that. He is, was experiencing dementia. And, you know, he was just, he was so, I, I was afraid he was going to die bitter and angry. And and um, because that's where he was at, 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 at in that stage. And he came to, he was reborn. And um, reborn that night because he chose to leave his body, unbeknownst to everyone. And so, um yeah, I'm glad. He, I'm glad he discovered that. I'm, I'm glad he just he came full circle into his own self love. Right. You know, uh, anger was a very common emotion amongst people with HIV and AIDS because because it was taking people out early chronologically. I mean, there were mm-hmm. men in their twenties and thirties and early forties that were not t- typically supposed to die. What was his process? How did that contribute to his process as an artist? What was his art like in the in the days of living with HIV and AIDS for him? Well, it did shift. It became, his palette became darker and uh, uh, coincidentally mine became brighter because I was now trying to pump up, you know, uh, like positive energy for him and for myself to keep on going. Um, but his work became um, kind of foreboding. Um, he, he, his imagery had shifted into more of like a religious persecution type imagery 
there were a lot of bishops and and um, priests pointing at naked women in you know in the center of the of the the, the screen. He had done kind of swan songs images. There, one of his last pieces was called "The Return of the King," and it was this man holding this um, this uh, this medicine wheel, burning medicine wheel. It was like like a, and he had a crown. Um, and there were images of like you know like a little house with a burning house, like a, with a family. And um, so he and a black swan in the foreground, a skull in the foreground. So he was um, preparing for his death, I believe. And so those images uh, would come up. He was trying to make sense of it. Yeah. Um, and so I saw at the Craig Crawl Gallery a painting mm-hmm. that you did the night he died. Uh-huh. And it is one of the most impactful paintings I have ever seen. It's this huge uh, conglomeration of color. Can you tell us about that painting? Ah, uh, let's see. Craig, was that during the two-person show we had? Yes. I took a picture of you and I in front of it. It's the huge painting, and I do you was remember? it the one with like Carlos's face, like yes, like lurching out at you? Is very much like a Basquiat. If you look at a Basquiat painting, I didn't yes. realize it till later. Correct. Correct. It was exactly like a Basquiat. Full of emotion. I mean, you get emotion just standing in front of it. Yeah, and I remember yeah. saying like, "What is this?" And you said, "I painted that the night he died." And I said, "Oh yeah. my god." You it was just, it. yeah, it was just his spirit surging forth. There was this big head with gushing paint. After his death, I did several other much larger pieces in that. One was called um, Lover's Lament with this nude woman sort of wading in water and uh, of her tears and she was crying. And um, several others that, you know, the, the, there was a, 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 another death like La Pieta type uh, painting that I did of him where I'm holding the skeletal figure and there's death like all around this and sperm. And um, yeah, so I, I used the medium to help heal myself. Amazing. What was the impact of his death on you as a young woman? You were now a single mother, uh, you know, a Latina in LA. What, what, what was that like on you? Whoa, it was rough. It was, um, you know, I often, I often say that it was, the most horrific thing I've ever had to deal with, but I would do it all over again to have those 10 years with him. Um, but it was tough because suddenly I was thrust into this role of being responsible for him and his career and his estate, which I took on like I wanted to take on because I'm like, this guy was about to make it, you know, internationally and in New York. And suddenly he's taken out and I want people to know his genius. And so I, I really dedicated myself to keeping his name in the limelight, keeping him in, in, in exhibitions and meeting curators and trying to set up museum shows. Um, so my career really suffered from that. It took a backseat. Uh, and, and plus, now I had, you know, we, we had a standard of living that I had to maintain for our daughter. I didn't want to pull her from her private school and, you know, move and so I had to be the businesswoman, which I never was. Carlos was always the businessman. And I really resented him for that, that he left me to have to deal with that. Um, so it really just shifted my entire life from being the carefree creator to, you know, being the head of the household and now a single mom, which was not easy. Maya was um, very, very attached to both of us and of quite a, a, a daddy's girl. So um, she suffered a lot and, you know, she's still kind of dealing with the ramifications of, of that loss. 
And, and Eliot, yeah, it's a loss as a little girl you never get over, I believe. Yeah, that's true. And, and so there was uh, the making of the movie Playing with Fire, the Carlos Almaraz story. Okay. Can you talk about, which uh, we talked about is your labor of love for him. Oh, Can you yes. talk about that process of making this incredible film? Sure. Uh, again, uh, the seed was that um, I didn't want him forgotten. And when he died, I kind of had this internal, um, like, devotional um, vow to him that basically said, I'm going to do a book of your art. I'm going to do a major museum, you know, retrospective of your work, which had never been done before. And I'm going to do a movie. So I, at the time, it wasn't a movie. It started as a book and it evolved into a movie. And um, yeah, so my, 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 it was a devotional piece for, for his legacy. I didn't want him forgotten. I wanted people to see what I knew of him, the, the brilliant, not only artist, but mind that he was. He was really uh, academically and spiritually uh, very evolved. And um, so that was, yeah, those were devotional pieces. So like what, two or three years ago when the movie was completed, um, the book came out, with, the Lachma show came out. So it all was completed in this, in, within a year. And I felt like my work is done. Now I can refocus and, and um, start my own work. And I, you know, I don't think it's too late. <laughs> um, I've, always, I've always continued to make art, but now I can really focus on my painting again. Do you think uh, was that a, you were you able to kind of heal from the loss through this process of putting together the film about his life or your life his oh, life together? Yes, absolutely. It actually took seventeen years to get the film completed. You know, 15, 14, 15 years. I was working um, alone on this, um, and sometimes with an academic uh, partner who helped me um, research and develop. And we, um, I was working all the time on just gathering information, getting slides together, scanning things, doing interviews, just all the, all the footwork you need to do that usually a team of filmmakers uh, do together. So it was many years of that alongside um, trying to get my own work done and, you know, trying to make a living. So um, yeah, 17 years later, um, you know, two years prior to the Netflix um, uh, showing, uh, or three three years prior, uh, Roberto Gil de Montes' brother, Mark Roberts, uh, came to me and said, my brother wants, you, wants me to help you make this movie because he had produced some things in Hollywood. I'm like, oh, really? See, I didn't even know that a producers, producers were supposed to, you know, pay for the film. I had spent so much money of my own putting this together. I'm like, oh my God. And I had shelved it because suddenly it was like, there's a lot of work, you know, I don't want to work alone. Um, so he came around and we put a team together and um, made some, you know, had some fundraisers. We had a big fundraisers at Cheech's house, who's a big collector, Carlos. And we were able to, to complete the film. What would you like for people to take away from the film? I would like people to be inspired. And for me, that was the goal. Like the life of this incredible man the ups and downs, the human ingenuity and the human spirit to continue, to continue living despite living with so many demons and having near deaths. And um, yeah, it's just the inspiration of this, this human 
uh, and the human condition in general for all of us that we can persevere and we can create great things. Um, so the, 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 the one piece, a second piece besides the humor in the film is I really would have liked to elaborate on his near-death experience at the County General Hospital in 1970-something, I believe, 1970 maybe, when he had acute pancreatitis from, from binging on alcohol. And um, he had these amazing visions. He was actually, he actually died. He said he, he, you know, he went to the, through the tunnel of light. He hovered above his body. Um, and during that time, these aliens, this, this small spacecraft, like tiny spacecraft, encountered him. And they took him on um, a journey through the universe. And uh, he was always interested in, in, he wanted to see spacecraft so, so much. When he was here in Hawaii, he'd always look to the sky wanting to, to see that again. But they encountered him and took him on this journey um, he was at that point interested in the universal language and a lot of his black and white gridded works were about that, like just marks and X's and squares. And so he was able to talk to a universal intelligence about that. And um, they asked him if he wanted to meet the creator of the universe. And of course he jumped on that and they took him to the far reach of the universe where he encountered a great white Eagle in the form of a, like a woman, a woman Eagle. And she said, I am not God. I am only the architect of the universe. And this was designed um, after a Mozart symphony or probably vice versa. And, um, and he has sketched, when he came back, he described their bodies, their vehicles. When he came back into his body, they gave him three choices. Actually, they said, you can return as yourself, as a newborn baby, or as an old black man named Charlie. He chose himself and he came back to, to his body and complete, you know, that's, that was a catalyst for him jumping into the Chicano art movement. Cause at that point he was still like a, a felt like a failed New York uh, artist. And um, so that gave him new energy, new focus, new, you know, everything um, changed for him by doing that. And instead of jumping into just like community, which he, he did as well, he went straight to the source. He went up and started working with Cesar Chavez. In fact, I just got a notice that Cesar Chavez Foundation is going to give him an award for his work with the United Farm Workers in June. So um, he would have been thrilled for that. I wish he was here to, to receive it. Amazing. What? Um, so let's talk about you today. You know, we've talked about how you are such a gifted and talented artist in your own right. I've seen your work. I own some of your work. Um, how would you describe your life today? Hmm. Well, we all have had struggles during the last two years. So I'm, it's been a bit isolating out here in the country. I'm way in this little tiny community at the, at the end of the road of the island of Kauai. And it's gorgeous. I mean, Carlos and I discovered this place because of our love for water and, and swimming and snorkeling. And we purchased this, this house way back then, like um, when he just started making money because his accountant said, you need a write-off. We we're going to buy our house in Highland Park. And the contractor said, oh, you'll never get your money back. You've got termites. you got this and that. Now that same house is worth a million and a half in Highland Park. But um, so my life is actually, I have a lovely life. I feel very blessed and very charmed. Uh, I have a charmed life. Um, I've got, you know, I'm I'm still hustling to make ends meet. I still have to sell art. And so I, I do that all the time. Uh, I've got a great group of friends. However, this year, my 
my uh, chosen family had have all moved out of my neighborhood because during the pandemic, all these wealthy techie guys came over and bought out all the, the rentals because they wanted to be to ride out the storm here, of course, and everyone was working remotely. So I lost my entire community here on this side. So that's why I'm just feeling a little lonely and isolated out here as of late. But now summer's coming. So people are starting to visit me from the mainland. Um, but yeah, I look around. I'm like, this is such a lovely life. I just want someone to share it with. You know, it's like, that's the best thing. I, I used to be the hub for my community and people would gather and I'd cook and we'd have these great times. Uh, a lot of artists here, a lot of poets and musicians. So um, I still wouldn't want to live anywhere else, but I did go back and forth to LA and I'm planning to go back um, in July, maybe late June to, to receive Carlos's UFW award. So um, yeah, I'm getting ready to start a new series of paintings and I just got the inspiration for it. I was always in love with the, the, the figure, especially the male figure. And that's one perk about living here. There's a lot of beautiful bodies on the beaches that I get to study. And um, so I'm going to do a series of these spiritual um, watermen, you know, surfers and, and canoe guys. And, you know, the, the culture here is very rich as well and very reminiscent of um, Chicano life and brown skin. And, yeah, it's just beautiful. Um, as an artist, how do you want to be remembered? Her. I think, I think, I don't know, you know, that's hard to say because, because of what happened to me politically with the whole macho, like exclusion of women kind of thing, I just assumed I would never be acknowledged in this life. And maybe when I die, I'd be like, you know, people would recognize my art. Um, and if they do, I'd like to be seen as a multi, multi-discipline, multimedia artist, which I am because I've, I do uh, photography and painting and ceramics. I've done several public art pieces uh, uh, in California and now I'm film a legit filmmaker and, and an activist, you know, a cultural activist, a, 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 a feminist. Um, yeah. Just, just, you know, a survivor. Right. Let's put it out to the museum and Elsa Flores Almaraz retrospective. Yay. Wow, that would be really great. You know, all my paintings, I, I would paint very heroically. I would paint huge. And with I'd use brushes. I mean, I'd do, use mops and brooms and like climb ladders and drop paint. And Carlos would say that um, I, I paint like a man. And at some point, he actually suggested that I change my name so they wouldn't know I was a woman. And he would sometimes tell people, oh, yeah, she's, she's got balls, too. She paints like a man. <laughs> so that would be great. Because I have all these paintings that no one's ever seen, that no one's ever purchased, that are just lined up in my studio in L.A. right now. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I, I would like to see them next time you're in L.A. Okay. Uh, I've seen some of the smaller ones, which were just amazing and beautiful. And Thank you. Like yeah, you I've said, seen... very thick bang, but very visually stimulating. They just mm -hmm. kind of draw you in. Mm -hmm. Um, what is your biggest regret as an artist? Regret as an artist. Wow, regrets. Regrets. Da, 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 da. What's that Frank Sinatra song? Uh, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Um, my regret is not being able to jump more into into music. Like, I really was like, 
Louis Perez and I were, were still very tight um, buds. And he and Dave and I did this whole knuckles head, like alternative music. And we would perform at like art events and things like that and do performance art. And I would document a lot of that. But um, it happened at the time when like it was kind of the punk scene I was really like wanting to be as punk ska musician as well I wrote several songs but they were Los Lobos and they were kind of going to break up but they didn't they had a like a, a rebirth and became like um you know uh, open for like rockabilly bands as the troubadour and 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 so they were starting to um rebuild their their band and so that hope kind of went out the window. And so, yeah, I would have loved to explore more of, uh, you know, being a, a, a mainstream musician. Amazing. Um, what is your perception of Chicano art as a healing mechanism for individuals and communities? Mm. How does art contributing to, contribute to healing? Art has always been a healer. Um, if not for the artists, then definitely for the collective. And um, I believe what's important in that for the collective is that we are seen. We are actually seen through the, this art, these artists that are out there that are Latinos and have the same cultural um, influences and upbringings. And that in itself is healing because for so many decades, we were not seen. We were not you know, taken seriously. We were not put in, in important shows. We were outside the mainstream. We were regionalized or barrierized, as Carlos would say. And so now that the, that temperament is turned, I think that's been very healing because as a, as a community, we have very few heroes. You know, there's Cesar Chavez, there's Lourdes Huerta, there's, you know, a few other people, but really not a lot. So if, if we can... Um, not canonize people like Carlos, but, uh, you know, we're acknowledging him as one of our great creators. Um, that is a healing for the collective. And uh, personally for artists, you know, um, art has just always been a healing tool for me. And I'm sure every artist has their own story of how their art has healed them. But yeah, I healed through my mother's death, through Carlos's illness, through his death, through, you know, my angst, through my, my teenhood, through... Um, art was really my salva vida. It saved my life on many occasions. That is amazing. Um, you are such a gift to myself and I know to many, many people. It has been wonderful to have you here. I'm wondering if people are interested in purchasing Carlos and yours work, where, where could they go? They can come to me. Yeah. Please, um, you can find me on Facebook, Elsa Flores Alvaraz, or uh, I also set up a, a Carlos a fan page on Facebook. There's a Carlos Instagram page, Carlos underscore 13. Um, and yeah, message me and I would love to um, to send along. I've been doing a lot of internet um, business, so I, you know, I find out what interests you and then I send images. And if I'm in town, I can meet you in LA. Um, otherwise, I've got an, uh, an art assistant um, who's been, my, again, a godsend, Sergio, who was a mentee of mine. He was a street artist. And I took him and, and uh, my other friend, Aaron, uh, under my wing. And Aaron is actually now about to graduate from Art Center. because So um, I'm just really proud of them. So Sergio's now my, my main man, studio assistant, and he pulls work for me and sends it off and, and is also meets collectors when I'm not in town to show the work. 
amazing. Well, I just Thank wanted to reflect how beautiful it is to be in contact with you again uh-huh. and to be uh, having conversations about art as always. I really encourage everyone to support the arts. I encourage everyone to support uh, the Carlos Almaraz and Elsa Flores Almaraz, Almaraz art. Um, through my group on Facebook, Collectors of Chicano Latinx Art, you can also access Elsa there if you're interested in purchasing art. We will see you again for our next episode, where we will also interview another iconic Chicano Latinx artist or icon. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, George. I appreciate Much love. Thank you for joining us on Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art. Please continue to tune into our series as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx art. Also, don't forget to visit the website www.latinoarte.com in order to view the beautiful array of Chicano Latinx art that is available to add to your own collection. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.